will assume their best, most trusted people would fall on hand grenades for them. And the truth be told is that most of them are playing scared. You know, they're, they're trying to get through their own lives, manage their own families, um, and their own, uh, their own dreams. And they play scared instead of playing to win. And so what I try when to do... When you say they, you're talking about the employees? Yeah, the employees. Okay. And, and so how I saw for that is to perform a deep dive on their management team to understand what motivates them as well as working with ownership to put into place mechanisms that make key employees more sticky. And what I mean by that is uh, that could include long-term advancement and succession planning, determining the depth of their bench, and also perhaps putting into place financial mechanisms that motivate and lock in an employee to the business so that they play to win every day. Picture a world where costs are down, profits are up, and customers are clamoring at your door. You're listening to Let's Get Up to Business from Jordan Law. Our interviews with business owners, service providers, and area experts can teach you how to create a world of success and profitability. If you're looking for an attorney to assist in your business formation, employment agreements, or other legal business needs, contact Jordan Law at 407-906-5529. You can also reach us on the web at jordanlawfl.com. Jordan Law, we protect you and your business. Hello and welcome to Let's Get Up to Business with Jordan Law. Joining me today is Dean Harrisis with Hard 90 Consulting. Thanks for joining us, Dean. Good morning, Jordan. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little about yourself and then we'll get into more detail about how your company and companies like yours can help business owners. Sure, Jordan. For the last 35 years, I spent the majority of my time working for Fortune 500 companies at a rather high level, senior leadership positions, and eventually decided to retire back to my home, Florida. And uh, after doing the retirement gig for about a year, I decided, you know, I missed the game. I missed being in the action. I missed the people. And so I started my own consulting company. So um, we have people listening to this. They know they need some consulting help. They, they love the background of working with the Fortune 500 companies. What's the best way for them to get in contact with you? The best way would be probably by my mobile phone, 386-689-3532. And that will go directly to you? Yes, it will. Okay. So with that being said, I mean, tell us more about your work experience that you bring into the consulting stuff that you're doing now. Certainly. Yeah, during those 35 years, I worked both domestically and internationally. Uh, everywhere from doing mergers and acquisitions work to setting up joint ventures to setting up whole uh, operations both domestically and internationally, um, leading small groups, a couple hundred employees up to 4,500 employees. A couple hundred. I don't know that that's small. Most most of our listeners, I think, are going to be in that 10 to 50 employee range. That's fine. It's all relative, Jordan, because at the end of the day, it's, it's how you manage the people that do the work for you. So have you worked in a specific industry consistently or worked across different industries as well as working, you know, domestically and internationally? More recently, the last 20 years, I worked more specifically in the title insurance industry and the real estate database industry. Prior to that, I worked in, uh, I worked worked for a very large uh, petroleum company, and I also worked for a large payroll processor as well as a large bank. Okay, so when it comes to, you know, working with your business clients now, 
I mean, obviously, it may be helpful for them to have been from one of those industries, but also with you having such a, a wide swath of knowledge, you can really help anybody. Yeah, it's very applicable to any business enterprise. All right. So from that standpoint, I mean, what? who's your ideal client? I mean, what's the ideal business that you want to work with? Ideal business would be a, a single proprietor or a um, mostly, you know, private companies, not necessarily public companies. Like I okay. certainly, you know, work my way through a public company. But working with smaller private companies that are on a either a decent growth trajectory or are maybe stalled, and they need some outside expertise to help them get to that next level. Uh, also, looking very closely at their their bench strength, working with their senior management team, understanding what drives them, and helping the owner um, perhaps put together uh, succession plans that will enable them to continue to grow. But you know. Size is, is relative, again, Jordan. It could be a, a 10 employee outfit, it could be 50 employees. And what about the length of time this business has been operating? Is there a sweet spot there where you're trying to target or just any, you know, is it really more about the issues they're facing? Good question. They typically should have been in business for at least two to three years and, and gotten their feet wet. And usually those are when the growing pains start to come about and a lot of times they don't necessarily have the answers themselves and they need to seek outside counsel to help them through those. Well, and it's interesting, you know, you mentioned they're getting their feet wet, but I think a lot of it is also, in addition to that, kind of it takes you that long to realize what you're actually selling and who you want to sell it to. And then that way it makes it much easier to bring in outside help. It, again, it, it all depends on that, that level of, of experience. Naturally, uh, somebody who's only been doing it for a couple, three years is going to need a, a much deeper dive. To enable them where someone with five to ten years of, of work experience um, we won't have to go you know, peel the onion as deep to determine what exactly is it that they need assistance with well you know I work with some you know n not necessarily younger but newer lawyers at least newer to running their own practice and it's amazing how you know you talk about that onion peeling but really sometimes that's the most helpful thing you can do because a lot of business owners have never really peeled that onion correct I mean, it's amazing to me to ask people, you know, who's your ideal client, and they just stare blankly. And, you know, from my standpoint, if you don't know your ideal client, then you don't know where to spend your marketing money. You don't know who you want to network with. You don't know where that client's going to be, who they're going to talk to, how they're going to find you, and you're just throwing money, which, don't get me wrong, I threw a ton of money at really bad ideas because I didn't answer that question, but um, it's just amazing to me. You know, you can't really decide success until you know who is the client you're trying to bring in. True. There's two sides to that. Um, obviously, you, you've got to a deal and adapt with a certain level of failure to right. succeed. But I'd also like to tell people this, and it's a, a baseball metaphor, but you can't steal second if you keep your feet on first. So you've got to take risks. Oh, of course. To, to get ahead. And, and sometimes businesses take blind risks and get called out, or they take calculated risks and they're safe because they've They've done the math. So when you're sitting down with a, I guess, I guess walk me through the beginning of the process of you working with a company. I mean, are they coming to you with a decent idea of the problem or are you trying to figure out what their problem really is or how does that work? It's actually both sides of the coin. It might be a situation where, for example, most businesses are a owner's greatest asset. Without that business, they have nothing else. I'd hope so. Uh, not the first part, not necessarily right. the second part, the greatest asset part. I'm not, I'm not suggesting they're going to be, you know, bagging groceries at Publix, but 
but they have nothing else going on that, 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 that propels their dreams and their desires in, in, in their life. What, what I try to uh, help them with is to realize that that business being the, their keyest asset, how often have they subjected it to any kind of like annual physical? You know, we do that to our own bodies to keep ourselves healthy, but our businesses, we, we usually don't. We're, 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 not, we're afraid to, to ask for somebody else to take an inside look at what we've created and to be open enough to take uh, const constructive criticism and inputs from a complete outsider um, in the, uh, to the benefit of them long term. And that's what I try to do when I, when I look at a business is it could be a, a holistic view of the entire organizational structure, the management team, their, their supply chain and the management of that, um, their customers, uh, or it could be just a component of that that maybe they feel they need uh, more assistance with. It could even be that just, just looking at the cash flows of the financial side of the business, which to me is the easier part to do given my background. But the, uh, I love diving into the people part of the businesses because that's where the magic really is. Well, it's, it's interesting because you know, I love you work closely with some accountant firms to kind of go through the numbers. But then obviously you talk about the people and that human connection. I mean, that's sometimes that's more important than the number. Sometimes it's less. But I guess knowing which one it is is key. It's true, and I'll tell you, when, when you go through a retirement stage someday, you're not going to miss the work, but you will miss the people. I mean, that's how I feel. I left the state attorney's office four-something years ago, and, you know, I don't miss being a prosecutor at all, but it was it was nice when you had people's birthdays and you had, you know, an office of 150 instead of an office of 10, although thankfully there are many fewer people that I work with now that I don't like as opposed to in an office of 150. Won't uh, I won't drop any names. Hopefully, maybe <laughs> some of them will be listening. But no, it's 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 interesting because you know a lot of times um, you know like we talk about there's a concept like profit first. You know from a from a financial standpoint, it talks about you know making sure you pay yourself first and then have enough left over for the business because from a normal household standpoint, you want to put away enough for retirement and then do the the discretionary spending after that. Um, but a lot of business owners don't really treat their business the same way they treat themselves, which goes back to your physical point. All right. And another thing that I've, I've learned, too, just looking at businesses, is that a lot of times an owner will assume their best, most trusted people would fall on hand grenades for them. And the truth be told is that most of them are playing scared. You know, they're, they're trying to get through their own lives, manage their own families um, and their own, uh, their own dreams. And they play scared instead of playing to win. And so what I try when to do... When you say they, you're talking about the employees? Yeah, the employees. Okay. And, and so how I solve for that is to perform a deep dive on their management team to understand what motivates them as well as working with ownership to put into place mechanisms that make key employees more sticky. And what I mean by that is uh, that could include long-term advancement and succession planning, determining the depth of their bench, and also perhaps putting into place financial mechanisms that motivate and lock in an employee to the business so that they play to win every day. So you're you're going to go as you're going to go so far as to sit down with the owner to come up with a bonus structure that will help motivate their team the right way. It could be a bonus structure, it might be an, an equity stake at some later date. It could be especially in a, a, a right to work state like Florida. It could be um, a an employment agreement where uh, how many of us would love to have an employment agreement where we have guaranteed compensation outside of doing some nefarious, you know, act 
right um, or breaching it in, in whatever capacity but to uh, to work with that would be tremendous I did a lot of M&A work and that was typically how we tied in a previous uh, owner of a company to help us with the succession uh, and, and integration of the business as they would get a two or three year employment agreement and as a uh, worker for a fortune 500 company you know you used to like roll your eyes and go god I wish I had that um, but I think it's a very powerful tool for even a small business owner to consider um, with respect to retaining and developing their best. Gotcha. So, I mean, I guess it's going to be different for every business and every situation. But when you're coming up with this sort of system, I mean, are you looking for certain, what's it, KPIs, the uh, known, known performance indicators? So you're trying to come up with those to figure out what's the way to measure the growth the right way for these or measure benchmarks for for success or is it not even that consistent across the different businesses? No, it's actually a balance. You've got to understand what KPIs drive the business and what KPIs drive the individual. Okay. And, and then you've got to m marry the two so that there's a win-win involved because at the end of the day, the business has to succeed. And that's the owner's primary focus, and it should be. But at the same time, they've got to surround themselves with good people. You know, S Steve and uh, uh, Steve Jobs with uh, Apple's widely quoted as saying, "You know, I don't, I don't want to hire people like me. I want to hire people smarter than me." Right. And uh, and business owners, small or large, should think the same way with respect to how they surround themselves with talent, and and nurture that talent. So, can you walk me through kind of? I guess, is there a way to walk through how you come up with those KPIs, or that's going to be too case-by-case -case specific for us to kind of go through the... Yeah, depending on the size of the organization, it could be you know rather deep and extreme with a lot of, say, personal interviews with managers. Okay. Um, with a smaller business, it might be more of a roundtable session, kind of an airing out where... You know, there's a, an agreement at the beginning that says, look, you know, what we say here stays here, but our whole point of going through this exercise is to get some things out on the table that need to be discussed with a, a mediator in a room or, or a moderator, moderator, however you want to call it, and uh, enable them to uh, you know, share some of the observations that, that they've had more in a public environment than, say, a private one. I prefer to go the private route because right. then I can speak more uh, eloquently with the owners or principals of the business without necessarily breaching any kind of, uh, you know, uh, security or you know privacy in those cases. And obviously, when you're looking for what motivates the individual, you know you have to talk to the individual. Absolutely, and and everybody's going to have a different view on that. And also, it's, it's sometimes difficult to get them to talk. Right. Um, and I've we've done what, I, what we call 360 interviews, where we 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 researched opinions from say like I was a senior vice president we would seek opinions from the presidents above me, the senior vice presidents or peers beside me, and the vice presidents and below me, and directors, and get all their inputs on what they thought about Dean. And we would use that tool as a way of evaluating what does Dean need to do differently with respect to his own personal growth path? Is he consistent across all those different layers of management? Which is really key. Right, that's because I'm imagining you get people that have a much different viewpoint from their superiors as they do from their underlings. Absolutely, and then and then you also learn through those processes some of the mistakes that people make as part of their career path, 
and that includes owners alike. And I'll give you my, my biggest mistake when I was a young gun and really going at it. I wanted to boil the ocean. What do you mean by that? Well, I wanted to win every battle. Ah, uh, okay. And I learned that you need to choose your battles. It's all about winning the war. It's like marriage. Yeah, you could say that. You don't have to win every fight. You have That's to, right. You have to pick the couple that are important. But, but once I saw for that, Jordan, I realized that I wasn't going to win every battle. Um, and I was more focused on the greater good of the whole, the whole, the business. Senior management took note of that. And that's when my trajectory happened. Because then they saw that was somebody I, I could trust, that I wasn't out to just get it, get everybody or, or win every event. Um, it was more about the, the end zone. And uh, that certainly was a, like a hockey stick you know, inflection point in my yeah. career path. Well, it's interesting to me. You, know, you talk about the people being uncomfortable talking with you the outsider in that time frame and all this but i gotta tell you i mean the thing about you that i like the most is you've got this really nice disarming personality where like you just come off very nice and likable and so there's i don't know if that was something you intention if something that you naturally had or something you worked on but i can imagine it makes it a lot easier to come into these places having had that viewpoint of i don't need to win everything i just want to be likable so people will talk to me or i can pick what the issues are going to be yeah it was a work in progress it just didn't happen overnight I had to, I had to cultivate that, um, not just the mindset, but just how I carried myself, and that was a result of actually, just experience points running into different um, leaders, different managers, and taking elements of each of them, the elements that I embraced, like I look at somebody and say I like the way he or she handles that, I'm going to start doing that, and I also took the negatives too, I had a. a a leader that uh, I just despised. I showed up to work late every day just to just to piss him off. <laughs> okay, but I stayed after. I always put in the time. Right. But I did little things to agitate him because I just didn't like his his uh, his style. And so as I moved up in a, in a in a different channel, I ensured that I never mimicked the things that he did to irritate me. Which is interesting, you know. I always. I always tell people the mark of success is being able to be you and let the dominoes fall because, you know, you'll get those people that for you it's a toxic work culture, but then there's like a bunch of idiots that love working for him just because of, you know, the micromanagement or whatever it was that pissed you off that they like. Absolutely. So it's, just, it's interesting, you know, to try and – I really think that you just have to figure out what you think is best for yourself from what you see in other people, but understand that even then you're going to rub some people the wrong way still and really be liked by other people just because, you know, people are different, but you're being the best you. Right. Because, you know, it's I always tell, like, a coach trial team over at Barry, and they're like, oh, I want to, you know, I want to advocate like you. And I'm like, no, you don't. You don't. You don't want to be me. You want to be the best version of you because that's going to be authentic. That's and great so, advice. Yeah, well, it's interesting. You know, you get people who read the uh, biographies or whatever of all these people and think, oh, my God, I got to do this exactly the same way and then wonder why they fail. Because, you know, there's a billion other things about you that are different than Bill Gates or Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg or, you know, whoever it is you're reading this wonderful biopic about. But I like the concept of focusing on, I saw this person do it this way and I liked it, I'm taking it. I saw this person do this way, I didn't like it, I'm running away from it. It's very, it's a very good way to be you. Totally agree. It's worked, it worked for me. I'm not, not suggested that it's going to work for everybody, but it's a... It's a good plan, and I always advocate have a plan before you dive into something. I did a, a presentation for a, a lot of uh, leaders um, at the last company I worked for, and I used 
a gentleman who's a free climber. His name is Alex Honnold. Maybe you've read about him. He climbed El Capitan without a rope. Oh, yeah. Is he uh, the one in Free Solo? Yes. Okay. And say the name sounded familiar. And, and how I opened up the, the presentation was I showed a picture of him standing on Half Dome with this very scared look on his face. And he, and he was had his back to the wall and 2,000 feet below him, sheer cliff. And I asked the audience, I said, do you think this guy has a plan? And, of course, everybody laughed and went, you know, not even, no, hell no, he had no plan. The truth be told is before he even ascended Half Dome without a, a rope, he used ropes and carabiners and climbing equipment several times until he had mastered the path. So he did have a plan. He did the same thing with El Capitan, a much, much more difficult climb. But in both cases, um, he didn't have a death wish. He had an actual plan, worked through the problems, built up his confidence, and then he goes for it. And he's, he's well, a success. And hopefully he talked to his lawyer about making sure his estate plan was in place, just just, just <laughs> on the off true. chance. True. It rained, you know. Yeah, I know. It's, um, but, but having a plan is key, and that's why I bring Alex up, because he's a classic example of on the outside, you wouldn't have a clue that this guy was smart cookie, but he's sharp. I'm, I'm wired differently. Yes. The uh, I got a, a buddy of mine who does uh, actually just started doing base jumping, was doing, you know, jumping out of a plane. We've had this, literally this exact conversation about, you know, the difference between being an adrenaline junkie and having a death wish. Um, and for those of you that don't know, I mean, please go Google El Capitan and see, like, it is, it looks like you are straight up. I mean, I'm sure there's you know, some angle to it, but I, I've stood at the bottom and it's very imposing. I can only imagine standing, well, I've stood at the top too, but not, not on the edge. Um, no, so, you know, you've got so much experience here and so many different things across a bunch of different companies. So walk me through, you know, you talked about the bad management, that the bad manager you had to some extent, but what are the most common problems that you see in business owners or in businesses as you're as you were a part of them and now as you're doing the consulting work for them afterwards the easiest one to recollect would be just the ability to give up control on certain elements of the of the enterprise you know as a small business owner you you have to have your hand on all the levers and that will work up to a certain point and then the growth will kick in and you have to give up control to trusted resources. You've got to put people in a position to succeed and have the confidence that they'll do that, but still have their back. You know, you got to hold their hand across a tightrope at times. Um, some people are more self-starters than others, but coaching and counseling is key, giving them the confidence that they can do the things that you expect them to do with clear instruction and, and give them an opportunity to run. And if they fail, then let's un understand, analyze what, what went wrong and make a course correction. Um, I'm, I have mind and belief that everything can be ultimately you know, fixed, but you know, you've got to start with a solid foundation uh, of a circle of people around you that um, not necessarily believe in you and, and your goals, but, but are, are comfortable in their own skin um, and feel that they have a future, a, a path, a clear path to, to their own success, however you measure that. For some people, just putting in, doing what they're doing, which they assume they do it well, and just putting in an eight to five, five days a week, and they're comfortable with that. As an owner, you have to embrace that, that that's, they're happy, they don't want more responsibility, 
Um, hopefully, though, that doesn't put them as, as the weakest link in the chain because those are the ones you, you do have to make changes with. But accept the folks that are, are content with where they are, but recognize those that want more and, and embrace that and help them, uh, help them be the best that they can be. Well, it's interesting you mention it from that standpoint because I always, you know, when I deal with, with a lot of my clients, I always have to use metaphors. And so the two that always keep coming up are I compare us as lawyers to doctors or I compare us as a law firm to a restaurant. And, you know, it's, you know, you look at it from a restaurant standpoint. So, you know, you've got the, you've got the wait staff, you've got the bussers, you've got the chefs, you've got the sous chefs, you've got the purchasers. Somewhere back there, you've got the farmer that, you know, grew the stuff that's being cooked. And all of those things, you know, those, 8, 10, 15, 50 people that through this chain meet, end up with you having that meal, even though the wait staff may not be able to be a good chef, even though the chef may not be able to raise the the cattle or, or grow the carrots or whatever it is. And so a lot of people don't really apply that in a normal business, and they think everybody needs to be able to do everything so well when that's not the case. Yeah, certainly, but, but with small businesses, there are a lot of multitasking. Oh yes, absolutely. And, and so sometimes maybe that that uh, that mix isn't appropriate for everybody that's part of that that process. It needs to be adjusted. And sometimes a business owner is too busy to really see that uh, and doesn't take a step back. Um, Dead Poets Society is one of my favorite movies, and I like it only because it teaches you to you know stand on a desk occasionally and take a different perspective of what you're trying to deal with. You know, step back go to a different corner of the room and, and, and peer to, at the challenge or the problem differently. And it helps you to see clearer. And I've done that a lot in my own, in my own uh, experience. Not standing up on desks per se, but... But metaphorically. Yes, challenging yeah. people to take a deep breath, step back from their, uh, their challenge that they're dealing with, and try to look at it through a, a different perspective. Well, see, a lot of times I talk to people about take vacation and disconnect. And then see what happens. You know, you get a lot of you talk to a lot of these business owners, and they're like, "Oh, I'm going on the cruise. I got to get the internet package. I've got to check in with the office." Like, if you've got the right people in place, if you've got the right systems, if you've got you know the right structure in place, you should be able to go away for three days, four days, five days, and not come back to you know a charred wreck of where the office used to be. Yeah, how I managed that was really simple, Jordan. I did take a two week vacation one time to Hawaii. I didn't. I totally just decompressed. It was such a decompression when I came back, I actually felt lost. You know, you'd pass people in the hallway and you're like, is that Joe or Bob? I'm trying to remember, you know, honest to God, oh. I, mean, I, mean, I really decompressed. Now that is a hell of a vacation. It was, it was a wonderful, restful vacation. But what it taught me was that I still needed to stay just connected enough to keep myself abreast of what was going on without making decisions for others. Okay. So. What I ended up doing after that, especially with the advent of the smartphone, it was very helpful, was I always would tell my staff, look, I'm going to be gone for a week. Um, every morning, I'm still going to have my cup of coffee, whether I'm here or halfway around the world. And when I have that cup of coffee, I'm going to spend an hour looking at my emails. And I'll respond to the ones that need to be responded to, and I'm going to ignore the ones that don't need to be responded to. And that's all the time you're going to have to communicate with me for the week I'm gone. So if you have something important, crank okay. out crank out an email, explain to me the problem. I will respond to it, but it might wait till the next morning, depending on the time zone I'm in. But it gave me an opportunity to stay connected without ruining my vacation, and it really didn't change my 
my, my, my flow, my, my daily work plan, because I would do that anyway whether I was home or abroad. It's not a uh, it's not a bad way to do it. You set you set some ground rules and boundaries, and still there is the uh, the support system and the safety net. By the time you know the kids or the, the wife were up and ready to go do something fun, that was behind me, and I could let it rest. So I mean that kind of sort of goes still into our kind of delegation issues, or you know getting stuff off your plate. Um, are there any tips or tricks you recommend for business owners or higher level execs on how to delegate more? Yeah, let me think about that for a moment because every situation can be different. Again, it depends on the size of the organization right. to, to a greater degree. I think the first thing any leader should do is sit down with each of their key people individually and, and ask them some really important open-ended questions about what drives them to come in, not literally, but what drives them each morning to, to come in and do what they do. If somebody says their car, maybe they don't have that long of a future exactly. at the company, though. But you also want to understand what causes any hesitation, um, what, what are their own personal uh, dreams and aspirations, what are their family goals, where do they see, I love, I love this question, I always ask all my employees, where do you see yourself in five years and ten years? And have, basically create vision. I did that when I was really young, I was in college. And I, I got married young, still married, you know, 36 years later. So Congratulations. Thank you. And, but I was, um, you know, married, married at a young age, and I immediately made myself two goals. And one was, in five years, I want to own my first home. And, in t with, um, and before I turned 30, I wanted to be a dad. Well, four years and 11 months, I bought my first home. There you go. And at 29 years, eight months, I became a dad. Hey. Now, it just didn't work out that way. I think by placing that goal in my head, those visions, it enabled me subliminally to do the small things that got me there. Right. I mean, that's the same thing they talk about with a vision board. You know, just, just because you put a picture on the board doesn't mean that that's going to actually make it come true, but looking at it and internalizing and thinking about it makes you make the thousand decisions that you make in that intervening time to get to there. So getting back to a business, I would ask an owner, you know, where do you want to be in two years? So that, that's a reasonable amount of time. It's not too far out. Five and 10 is a very long-term plan. And like any budget, it, it becomes stale the moment you print it. Right. So uh, I would ask him for, you know, g give me a two, two to four year plan of where you see the business. And I also ask the employees the same thing, where not only where they see the business, do, do the two jive, but also personally, where do you see yourself personally in that time period inside that business? Do you still see yourself doing the same work? Do you see um, a promotional opportunity ahead where the business is gonna evolve to the point where they're gonna need somebody to manage a completely different vertical or a completely different aspect of the business that wasn't there today but is tracking to get there. When you say vertical, just for, for people like me that don't understand business speak. Well, for example, um, you're a law firm and you specialize in criminal law, correct? Uh, we're focusing a lot more on the business and personal injury okay. stuff, but we do a lot of criminal law as so, well. Yeah. So criminal law is one vertical. Business law is a second vertical. Okay. You might go into perhaps patent and trademark law at some point. That would be a third vertical. Complete, a complete specialty, but still within the vein of being a law firm. All right. So when you say vertical, you're talking about different 
offerings of the business, different yeah, product di- wings. Typically, in a larger corporation, we'll call them a division. Okay, gotcha. So, you, I mean, I guess from my perspective, and maybe this isn't correct in, from your perspective, I've always found that my best employees have been the ones that have that goal. They're coming in as a legal assistant within the next five years to go to paralegal school, become a paralegal. They're coming in as a paralegal the next five years to go to law school, come back as a lawyer. I mean, those always seem to be the people that do the best time here. Maybe that's because of our size. Maybe that's because of our interest in developing our employees. Maybe it's just random chance. Culture. Culture is huge. Okay. Um, Don't underestimate how important culture is to a business. And the owner dictates that. If they, you know, rule with an iron fist, that's going to create perhaps an ominous culture to work within. But if they rule with an iron fist with a velvet glove that can change the the viewpoint of the employee to where they actually might respect you because while you are pulling the strings and running the show there's a softer side to you there's a more a delicate more political side to you that's balanced where you're fair Um, and so you can be a tough guy or a tough gal but still have people respect you and um, and that that's the, the most important attribute that any owner can has to work toward is to get the employees respect because once you have respect then trust develops from that and everything else just flows but without that element um, you're always going to have uh, not so much challenges you're going to have um, I'm trying to think of the right word here uh, you're going to have friction and that friction boils over into other things that it has nothing to do with the business or, 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 the, or the process or the plan, and it just creates turbulence that you don't need in your day-to-day. Well, it's interesting. So for me, you know, when the, when the show The Office, when that first came out, was before I ever had a real office job. You know, in high school, I worked at a flower store. It was totally not an office job. And so I, like, didn't think The Office was funny. I didn't get it. I didn't know those people. And then, you know, rewatching it when I was at the state attorney's office and rewatching it now, I'm like, oh my God, this is so true. Now, obviously, I think Michael Scott teaches you how to be a boss and what not to do, but it's just an interesting concept of, you know, being able to really nail down this stereotypical office culture for better or worse. And, and, and trust, again, is key because now you can eloquently challenge your boss because they, they have mutual respect. And that trust allows you to challenge them, to, to tell them, I don't agree with you. And that's what helped me in my career, moving up the, the, uh, the ladder, so to speak, was I was one of those employees that wasn't afraid to tell my boss that I disagreed. And he, these were the reasons why. And whether I was right or wrong was second to the fact that I wasn't afraid to challenge them in a respectful way. Well, a lot of times, you know, being able, being able to explain to somebody why their idea isn't the best idea can still help you confirm for you why the other idea is better or figure out exactly what about the other idea does make it better. So there's, you know, there's a lot of benefit even in being wrong if you approach it the right way. Exactly. As, as an employee, you're going to win either way. You're either going to get better because you were wrong and you learned something new or you actually were smarter than the boss that day or that moment. And you've got some brownie points uh, as a result of not being afraid to speak your mind at the right moment. You know, there, there, there's a bit of an 
art and science to how that how that's managed. Right. And, and bull in China shop doesn't work. Well, that or six months later after the business is already wasted, you know, $50,000 on this terrible idea. And you're like, oh, I, I knew this wouldn't work out. Exactly. Thanks. Yeah. Um, so that I mean, that puts us at about the 35, 40 minute mark. I mean, in in uh, five or 10 minutes, you know, any other major problems that we need to cover? Because I mean, obviously, we could you and I could talk all day about all this stuff. I mean, we're both we speak the same language here. I think, um, you know, you talk about, we talked about, you know, things we learned when we were younger. I talked about, you know, choosing your battles. And I think a really another important piece of professional advice that I could give to your listeners today is to trust their instincts. Um, you know, hard data is good for many moments and many decisions, but sometimes you have to go with your gut instincts on certain matters, especially when evaluating people and potential employees. So, you know, if, if, if the data runs out, trust your gut. Well, it's, you know, you, you, it's interesting because you talk about, like, there's so many of these giant companies now. Like, if you were sitting in a pitch meeting 15 years ago for Uber and somebody was like, hey, why don't we have random strangers drive other random strangers around? <laughs> yep. Anybody with any concept of data or common sense or whatever would say that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. But these people push forward and now, you know, you've got this huge, gigantic company that's, I think still losing money, but losing less money with a bunch of investors that's trying to get into, you know, self-driving cars and all those things off of what any normal person would tell you is probably a terrible idea. Yeah, I, th I think in more recent times, that's a great example. Um, people that have just come up with that disruptive technology or disruptive idea have actually figured it out before the rest of us did. And uh, I agree. Financially, it's maybe not working out as well as it should. Conceptually, it's brilliant. Um, I've used Uber many times and love the convenience of it. Um, but again, financially, it remains to be seen whether it's a, a viable business model or not. But you get enough people that trusted their gut through, I'm sure, everybody telling them that they're wrong or that it's not a great idea. And now, I mean, who knows? They're worth billions and billions and billions of dollars. True. Yep. Okay, so... so Trust your gut, you know, delegate stuff, be be willing to have a back and forth, set the office culture. I mean, what else? We got a also, lot of, a lot of well, good gems here. I mentioned, I mentioned earlier that I have a lot of international experience. And most small businesses, they may or may not realize how connected they are internationally, whether they realize it or not, mostly through their supply chain management. And they don't give it too much thought that they're, they're either delegating that or managing it themselves, but you got to have an international view of, of the world now, even if you're just a small business based in the Orlando metropolitan area. You will be impacted internationally at some point during the life cycle of your business. And that's some of the expertise I also bring in too, is you know, how you navigate that, how you deal with different cultures, how you uh, maximize, leverage the world for the betterment of your own business. And talking to one of your high-level executives about uh, tweeting about in pro Hong Kong or or whatnot, and yeah. oh wow, the globalization of that. Yeah, you know, social media gets so many folks in trouble, and and uh, you know, that's a message for the younger listeners out here: is that don't don't ruin your your future with making random comments um, online that may come back to haunt you. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, we look at. The more we become globalized, the more there are positives from that, the more there are negatives from that. And so it's it's interesting for businesses to have to think about, 
you know, where am I getting this product from or what could be going on in those countries to disrupt my product line? Or, you know, do I want to get the cheapest product while I'm supporting these human rights violations or do I want to spend more and get them from America at a, you know, much higher cost? It's an interesting moral but also business decision that a lot of companies have to make because I can imagine, like, you know, you don't want to order your key product from Somalia or something like that. True, especially if your primary customers, and there a lot of times your customers are, are a larger entity than you are, um, and they, t- they come to lie to that, and that changes their perspective on you as an individual as well as a business because you've maybe crossed a line that may or may not have been a taboo in your own mind initially, but now you've realized it has. So you have to be sensitive to that. It's not that you, it changes your, your ultimate decision, but you have to bring that up in the equation of when you when you manage uh, supply chains, for example. Okay. Any other major things we need to cover? I mean, like I said, we're 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 just the tip of the iceberg here on this conversation, and I think we've outlined yeah. a lot of it. But yeah, just in closing, I, I just love to be able to, to work with owners that are not afraid to have the courage to allow an outsider peek into their business and give them good advice and not just towing a line. You know, I'm not doing this just to, just to earn an extra little paycheck here and there. I'm, I'm retired fully right now. I don't have to do this, but I want to do this because I have all this knowledge in my head and all these experience points, and I want to see others benefit from that and, and grow if they'd only just you know open up their mind a little bit and, and be willing to take that I call it a courageous step to let an outsider take a look at their business and help them. Well, and make sure they have thick skin. Oh, definitely. Uh, it's, it's interesting, you know, like I tell people, as as much as it stinks paying somebody to tell you all the things that are wrong, it's a lot more beneficial for you than paying them to just confirm that everything's going right. Well, and I'll also, in my, in my work, I not only obviously outline the things that need to be focused on or worked on, but emphasize those things that they're doing very well and why they should continue doing that. All right. So now, so we've got those business owners. They've been listening to you for the last... I don't know, 40 or so minutes, you've really hit, uh, not hit a nerve, you've really struck a chord with them. You know, you're you're talking about some of the issues they're going through, they know they need your help. Can you give us the contact information again? Sure. Um, I'll give the phone number first and then an email address they can uh, send to me. Okay. Uh, that, that phone number is 386-689-3532. I'm based in New Smyrna Beach, but I travel all over. Um, an email is, I'll spell it because my last name, Harris, has a little bit of a uh, a tongue twister to it. Yeah, it's just it's one fewer R than I but expect every exactly. time. But uh, the, that email address is DS Harris's, D S H A R I S I S at Gmail. Okay. And obviously, although this is a only being audio recorded, when we post it anywhere, we'll make sure they have your name so they won't Appreciate have that. The, uh, that problem. All right, so with that being said, um, this should be episode 28, 29 of the podcast. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Last FM. Sp- uh, we're even on Spotify. I found that out the other day. That's that terrific. Was, that was pretty cool. Um, so anywhere they'll let you post a free podcast, you know, we're there. So if you're on any of those, listen to the podcast, you know, you like us, or at least you like the guests that I bring on, please, please, please leave us an honest review. Hopefully it's five stars, but important that it's honest. And then, um, you know, we'll wrap up the same way we wrap up all these. So if somebody has listened to this podcast 
and they take absolutely nothing else from it except what you're about to tell them, what is that one piece of advice you want as many business owners as possible to know? Open up their network. They might think they have a good network, but they need to continue to uh, develop that, um, broaden it, bring in as many inputs as they can, and then let their gut take over to kind of sort those inputs. There's a lot of data points, but the more data points you have, the better decisions you're going to make. The uh, We could easily do another podcast just on that. I mean, you're you're speaking the same language as me here. You know, and it's amazing to me the more the more access you have to people from a truly honest and caring and interested in them and vice versa standpoint, the more you the more potential you have to avoid recession, downturns, etc. Because you'll get people that genuinely care about you. They can't just be you know bought out by somebody else. You can't just have somebody else throw $30,000 on Google ads to ruin all your ads. But also there's those people that, you know, when you genuinely care about them and vice versa, will help you through you know, whatever problem it is, whether it's a financial issue, whether it's a staffing issue, whether it's whatever. So that is so true. That is a very good open up your network. I like it. And Jordan, again, thank you very much for having me on today. I yeah. really appreciate the opportunity. Of course. We always love having you here. You've been listening to Let's Get Up to Business from Jordan Law. We hope you've enjoyed the podcast and would consider sharing the show. We would also love an honest five-star review through iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcatcher you use. If you are interested in being a guest of the podcast, please contact producer Mark through email at Mark at jordanlawfl.com. Use the subject line podcast guest in your email. Thank you. We look forward to speaking to you again soon.